0: Welcome, USMLEers. My name is Zuka Zalishvili, and I'm the founder of USMLE. USMLE is an online podcast for the highest yield basic science and clinical knowledge tested on USMLE Step 1 and USMLE Step 2CK. The information discussed in this podcast is intended only for educational purposes. It's not intended to prevent, diagnose or to treat the medical conditions in real clinical practice, nor is it intended to reflect the policy and the guidelines of various health institutions. Simply put, we serve you to butcher your step exams. Please subscribe to our podcast, Facebook, Instagram pages, and the YouTube channels down below in the description of this episode so that we keep you tuned for the news at ZOOS Now, let's start rolling. Today, we are continuing our surgery series, and this is the third surgery episode. This is actually the last episode from the surgery, and today we will discuss eight different surgical conditions. Let's start talking about penetrating abdominal trauma. When the patient has penetrating abdominal trauma, for example, let's say that the patient is a victim of a gunshot or there's a stab wound which is penetrating <clears throat> excuse me penetrating trauma then the first question that we ask is are there any indications for emergent laparotomy in other words should we take this patient directly to the OR and there are four indications for emergent laparotomy the first one is when the patient is hemodynamically unstable that is, if the patient has hypotension, shortness of breath, or altermental status, even chest pain, that could qualify as hemodynamic instability, necessitating emergent laparotomy. Additionally, if the patient exhibits the classic signs and symptoms of peritonitis, for example, let's say that the patient has abdominal rigidity or we have the rebound tenderness In that case, we could also send, not not could, but we should also send this patient to the OR. If we see that there is evisceration, which literally means that the, the abdominal organs are out of the abdominal cavity, or we can see the abdominal organs with our eyes, that's definitely an indication for laparotomy, because when the abdominal organs are outside of the abdominal cavity. First of all, they lose the fluids, and it means that the patient is at risk for volume depletion, but at the same time, they are exposed to the external environment, which increases the risk for infection of those exposed bowels or the other parts of the GI tract. And let me take a little step back and talk about the difference between evisceration and dehiscence as a side note. I have noticed that several students think that dehiscence and evisceration are the same thing, but that's not completely true. And now we'll discuss what the difference is between these two terms. Let's start by talking about dehiscence. We have two types of dehiscence. We have superficial dehiscence and we have deep Uh, dehiscence, which is also called fascial dehiscence. Whenever the patient undergoes, let's say, abdominal surgery, then as we know, there is a scar, right? We have those sutures which hold the skin together so that the abdominal contents don't come out. When the abdominal scar opens up, this is called dehiscence. If only skin and subcutaneous fat open up, but the fascia is intact, this is called superficial dehiscence. In contrast, if the skin, subcutaneous fat, and the fascia, all of them open up, this is already what's qualified as the deep dehiscence, or it's also called fascial dehiscence. However, fascial dehiscence does not necessarily mean that the bowels are protruding and eviscerating. In other words, we might have deep dehiscence without evisceration, where we just have opening of the skin, subcutaneous fat, and the fascia. Or we might have deep dehiscence with evisceration, which means that not only we have opening up of all of these tissues, but also we have the evisceration of the bowel contents. So I hope that the difference between dehiscence and evisceration is clear after this discussion. And now let's get back to the indications for immediate laparotomy in patients with penetrating abdominal trauma. The last one is impalement. And certainly when the patient becomes pale and pale and pale, it means that this patient is losing blood. This might be an external bleeding or an internal bleeding, but regardless Bleeding is an immediately life-threatening condition that needs to be treated in the OR. Okay, we have identified these four indications for immediate laparotomy, but let's say that the patient does not meet any of these four criteria, then what do we do? In that case, we ask the next question. Does the penetrating object penetrate the peritoneum? And is there any significant organ injury? In other words, when there is a stab wound or the gunshot wound, the bullet or the knife or whatever the object is might penetrate only the skin and the subcutaneous fat, especially in overweight or obese individuals, or sometimes it can penetrate the peritoneum as well. And if the penetrating object penetrates the peritoneum, this means that the patient will likely develop peritonitis and we should definitely take her or him to the OR. The same is true when we talk about the significant organ injury. So if, let's say the FAST exam, which is focused assessment with ultrasonography for trauma, we see that there is peritoneal fluid, which is likely blood, we should definitely take this patient to the OR. But let's say that the patient's wound does not penetrate peritoneum and on the imaging, on the imaging, we don't find anything significant that might indicate the significant organ injury. Then what do we do in this case? In this case, we simply observe the patient and we periodically perform the abdominal exam to monitor whether the patient is developing the peritoneal signs or not. And this was the discussion about penetrating abdominal trauma. Now we will discuss the post-amputation pain and the differential of this type of pain. There are four conditions which can potentially cause the post-amputation pain. This is acute stump pain, ischemic pain, post-traumatic neuroma, and phantom limb pain. Let's start with acute stump pain. First of all, let's get back a little bit and talk about in what kind of situations these conditions happen. Well, all of these conditions are classified as post-amputation pain, which means that the patient should have undergone the amputation of the limb for whatever reason, whether it's, let's say, neck fash, it might be the gangrene, Um, let's say it's like diabetic ischemia and the gangrene. So it really doesn't matter why the patient has had amputation. But the idea is that once the patient has undergone the amputation, then he or she might develop either of these four conditions. And the first one, as we said, is acute stumping. So this pain is caused by the, by the stump itself, which can cause tissue and the nerve injury. An acute stump pain is very, very severe pain, and it usually lasts approximately two weeks, somewhere from one to three weeks. In contrast, ischemic pain is literally what it says. It's pain due to ischemia. In other words, at the site of amputation, there is ischemia of the subcutaneous tissue, and fascia, and the muscles. That's why not only we have the pain, but at the same time we have the skin discoloration, right? So the skin might seem a little bit cyanotic or it might look a little bit dusky because of the ongoing uh, necrosis and the tissue death. We will also see the wound breakdown in the ischemic pain. Because if we remember from our step one knowledge, Sufficient blood flow is extremely important for the normal wound healing. And in this case, we don't have the normal wound healing because there is insufficient blood flow. And finally, we will see decreased transcutaneous oxygen tension. In other words, if we can check the arterial pressure of the oxygen in the amputated limb, it will be lower than normal because there is ischemia. There is insufficient blood flow, and insufficient blood flow causes insufficient oxygen delivery. The third type of post-amputation pain syndrome is post-traumatic neuroma. And this is when the neuroma, the small lump or just globular nerve structure, develops at the site of amputation. This happens usually weeks to months after the amputation and around this small globular structure, there will be focal tenderness and the patient might also have the altered sensation of the skin. So there might be some tingling, paresthesias, and things like this. However, please don't confuse post-traumatic neuroma with its sensory neuropathy with the complex regional pain syndrome. Complex regional pain syndrome has nothing to do with the amputation, even though it might also have the altered sensation on the affected limb. And finally, what is very characteristic for post-traumatic neuroma is that the pain decreases with anesthetic injection. Very commonly, the question will say that when lidocaine was injected into the patient's circular structure, the pain was alleviated. And this means that this circular structure is most likely composed of the neural tissue and the local anesthetic could numb this neural tissue. So this is how we can pinpoint the post-traumatic neuroma in the case. And finally, we have the phantom uh, limb pain. Phantom is something that is non-existent. It's like ghost-like. So phantom limb syndrome means that the patient feels the cramping and burning in the area of amputated limb. In other words, she or he does not have that limb anymore. However, they still feel that there is some paresthesia and tingling in the area where they should have had the extremity. It usually starts within the first week after the amputation and phantom limb pain is especially prevalent among those patients who initially present with a very, very, very severe pain. And as we already mentioned, there will be some intermittent cramping and burning. And the way we can treat the phantom limb pain is mostly supportive. We can do physical therapy and occupational therapy to help the patients deal with this syndrome. However, Neuropathic agents like TCAs or gabapentin pregabalin can also help with most of these post-amputation pain syndromes and especially fentanyl pain. And this was discussion about the post-amputation pain syndromes. Let's talk about the primary survey in the trauma patients or primary survey in ATLS. There is a very, very useful mnemonic here, which I promise will help you a lot to remember the initial steps of stabilizing the trauma patient, and this mnemonic is a, B, C, D, e. a stands for Airway with Cervical Spine Protection. In other words, whenever we have the trauma patient, the first thing that we care about is to find out whether his or her airways are open. Because they need to breathe, right? And plus, we need to at least suspect whether there is a cervical spine injury. Because if there is a cervical spine injury or suspicion for it, we need to stabilize the cervical spine with the rigid board on which the patient lies down. Or we can stabilize, and also we stabilize the presumed cervical uh, cervical spine uh, damage with the rigid cervical collar. After airway patency, we need to check if the patient is breathing or not. To say it in other words, the patient might have the open airways, but this patient might not be breathing at all, right? So we need to establish what the patient's vital signs are, and in this case, respiratory rate, to find out whether the patient needs assisted ventilation. For example, whether the patient needs non-invasive ventilation or intubation. C stands for circulation. And especially, we need to control the possibility of the hemorrhage. Circulation is all about the blood volume and the blood pressure. Trauma patients commonly have internal or the external bleeding, which might cause hypotension, and hypo, even hypovolemic shock, so we should definitely obtain the vitals, and if we suspect that there is fluid depletion and hypovolemic shock, we should promptly, emergently start to supplement the fluid right with intravenous fluids. D is disability, and in disability, we mean that we need to check the patient's neurological status, but this is a basic neurological status. In other words, here we don't mean that we do a complete neurological physical exam on this patient because, as you know, neurological physical exam is one of the longest physical exams because it contains many, many different things. However, what we mean here is to calculate the Glasgow Comma Scale. We have Talked about the components of the Glasgow comma scale in one of our surgery videos, so we will not repeat it here. However, Glasgow comma scale from 13 to 15 is considered to be mild TBI, from 9 to 12, that's moderate TBI, and GCS anywhere less than 8 is a very severe TBI, and the patient likely requires intubation. There's also a mnemonic for this, if you remember. It's GCS less than eight, intubate, meaning we need to intubate patients. And the final component of this initial survey is E, which is exposure and environmental control. This is mostly about the poisoning toxidromes. Let's say that we have a patient who is a farmer and now this patient comes to the hospital drooling, having increased urination, diarrhea, meiosis, bronchospasm. What do you think about? What do you think is the reason for this patient's admission? I hope you are really telling me that this is organophosphate poisoning, and I agree. And we should also know that organophosphates can be absorbed through the skin and clothes. So in such patient, it's very important to take off their clothes so that we minimize organophosphate absorption through the skin. However, we definitely also treat this patient with atropine and the 2 but the main idea was that we need to decrease the absorption of the toxins from the skin and from contaminated clothes. And this is the primary survey in Advanced Trauma Life Support, or ATLS. Now we will discuss the rectus sheath hematoma. Rectus sheath hematoma is exactly what it says. This is when the blood accumulates in the sheath of the rectus abdominis muscle. But let's start talking about the risk factors for rectus sheath hematoma. And mostly this is abdominal trauma or very, very strong contractions. Let's say when the patient cuffs or When the patient is laughing or patient is training to defecate, that could all exert a very high pressure to the blood vessels in the rectus sheath, which is inferior and superior epigastric arteries, right? At the same time, if the patient is on anticoagulation, that's a risk factor for rectus sheath hematoma because anticoagulants make patients hypocoagulable. So it's very easy for them to bleed into the tissues. And additionally, elderly people, especially females, are for some reason at higher risk for rectus sheath hematoma. Now, how do we recognize rectus sheath hematoma in a question stem? This will be a patient, most likely an elderly female, who will start having a very, very acute abdominal pain. And the patient will also develop the palpable abdominal mass very quickly because the blood accumulates in the rectus sheath quite quickly. And this causes the mass to just bulge out. And it's, it's visible from the external physical exam. The patient will probably reveal anemia from the CBC. And this is blood loss anemia. In other words, when the blood accumulates in the rectus sheath, this can acutely drop the hemoglobin and hematocrit. We might also have a leukocytosis, which is mostly the effect of hemoconcentration, and some non-specific symptoms like nausea, vomiting, or the fever. How do we def- how do we treat the patient with rectus sheath hematoma? It all depends whether the patient is hemodynamically stable or unstable. If the patient is hemodynamically stable, we need to periodically monitor the CBC to check for the blood loss anemia. If the patient is on anticoagulant, we should definitely reverse the anticoagulant. For example, let's say the patient is on warfarin and she or he developed rectus sheath hematoma. In that case, we would definitely start either PCC, which is prothrombin complex concentrate, or FFP, fresh frozen plasma. And we will also start supplementing this patient with vitamin K for the uh, chronic reversal of the anticoagulant. And we might also need to transfuse the blood products when this is appropriate. In other words, if the hematoma is super large and we see that the patient is developing blood loss anemia on the CBC, which manifests as normalcytic anemia, mostly, and the patient is hemodym- so the patient is developing hypotension from the blood loss, then definitely we can start transfusing the blood products, and we might even have to activate the massive transfusion protocol in which case we transfuse not only blood, I mean, not only the RBCs, sorry, but also the platelets and the FFP in 1 to 1 to 1 ratio. Okay, this was the management of rectus sheath hematoma in a hemodynamically stable patient. But what about unstable patients? In that case, we need to be in a hurry, and we don't have that much time to serially monitor the CBC and things like this. In this case, we need to perform angiography with embolization. So we need to embolize the vessel that is ruptured and that bleeds, or we might even have to do the surgical ligation. So we physically, mechanically ligate the bleeding vessel. Commonly, rectus sheath hematoma is compared and contrasted in the question stem against the incisional hernia. Incisional hernia usually happens after the patient has had some kind of abdominal surgery, and since the skin, subcutaneous tissue, and the fascia at the scar is weaker than normal skin, then there might be a bulge of the bowels covered by the skin. So this is the incisional hernia. However, rectus sheath hematoma is much more acute condition. So it develops very acutely, and they will mention some kind of risk factor for rectus sheath hematoma. Let's say the patient developed it when she or he was coughing, or this patient is on some kind of anticoagulant, and this will tip you off more towards the rectus sheath hematoma than the incisional hernia. And this was the discussion about the rectus sheath hematoma. Let's discuss the risk factors for surgical site infection. Before we talk about the individual risk factors, It's better if we divide these risk factors into the patient risk factors and the procedural risk factors. In other words, what factors coming from the patient increase the risk of surgical side infection, or SSI, and what factors coming from the procedure, or the hospital stuff, increase the risk for SSI. And we'll start with patient factors. The first one is malnutrition and hypovolemia when the patient is malnourished then this patient does not get enough calories and especially the proteins to accelerate the wound healing we know that when we when there is some kind of surgery and definitely there's a scar and there's a wound the wound undergoes several steps of healing there is inflammatory stage proliferative stage and remodeling stage and we need to have enough amino acids in the pool of the protein in our body so that we can provide the wound with different types of collagen, for example. If the patient is malnourished, if the patient has hypoalbuminemia, and this is this albuminemia, hypoalbuminemia is caused by the malnutrition, it means that the patient will likely not have enough protein pool in their body to also support the wound healing. And if the wound healing is protracted, then there's a higher risk for that wound infection. Obesity is another very important risk factor for surgical side infections. When the patient is obese, uh, there might be multiple skin folds. And when there are skin folds, the bacteria and fungi, let's say candida, can overgrow deep down among those skin folds, which will increase the risk for the surgical side infection. If the patient is immunosuppressed for any reason, let's say the patient is on glucocorticoids for some generalized inflammatory disease like lupus, like rheumatoid arthritis, we know that cortisol and all of its derivatives, meaning glucocorticoids, have immunosuppressive effects due to many reasons, right? They decrease the neutrophil adhesion and extravasation from the vessels to the tissue. They trap the lymphocytes and eosinophils in the lymph nodes. They also inhibit the uh, leukotriene synthesis and so on and so forth. Therefore, when the patient is on glucocorticoids, he or she is immunosuppressed. At the same time, other immunosuppressants, let's say calcineurin inhibitors like tacrolimus, cyclosporine, all the other immunosuppressants decrease the immune system's function to prevent the graft rejection. However, when the immunity is weak, it doesn't work against graft. However, it also doesn't work against the infections. When the patient is on chemotherapy or the radiotherapy for some type of malignancy, chemo and radiotherapy, they can damage the bone marrow cells and that can definitely cause the leukopenia, which is indicative of the immunosuppressed state. Smoking is a very, very important risk factor for surgical site infection. They might give you a case of a patient who who prepares for some kind of surgery. Let's say that this is a middle-aged male, 57 years years old, who is preparing for the hernia surgery. And then they will list all of his behavioral risk factors for, basically, uh, for, for inhibiting the wound healing. And then they will ask, Which of the following will most likely decrease the risk for developing the surgical site infection? And stopping smoking is a very important step to decrease the risk for surgical site infection. Let me remind you that the cigarette smoke contains carbon monoxide, which binds to hemoglobin, forming carboxyhemoglobin. And not only we have decreased oxygen binding capacity, but we also have decreased unloading of the oxygen to the tissues because carboxyhemoglobin has left shift of the oxygen dissociation curve. And lack of oxygen definitely causes decreased free radicals in the infected tissues. And free, radicals are, free oxygen radicals are necessary for the neutrophils and the other phagocytes to kill the microbes. At the same time, smoke contains—I nic- mean, the cigarette contains nicotine, and nicotine is a vasoconstrictor by releasing norepine dopamine from the sympathetic nervous system. And when we vasoconstrict the vessels going to the surgical wound, that will decrease the blood flow to the wound, and it will delay the wound healing. And we know that when wound is still open, when it's still in inflammatory or proliferative stage, there is a high risk of infection. At the same time, if there is concurrent infection at another site, that's another risk factor. When the patient has undergone some kind of surgery and has the scar, not scar, but wound at first, once again, we say that wound undergoes several stages Of healing until it becomes scar or regenerates as a functional tissue. And we need all of those leukocytes like neutrophils and macrophages in the first two phases of the wound healing to accelerate wound healing. Now let's imagine that this patient has a concomitant infection in some other site. Let's say the patient had the abdominal surgery for diverticulosis. Let's say the patient Underwent the sigmoidectomy for recurrent diverticulitis, and then this patient also got the skin infection. Let's say cellulitis in some other in some other part of the body. So in that case, all of those leukocytes will concentrate mostly around the areas of the infection, and therefore the process of the wound healing will be delayed. Whenever we have any type of vascular disease, let's say diabetes, peripheral artery disease, or the venous insufficiency, this is also a risk factor for surgical side infection because any type of vascular disease can decrease the blood flow to the surgical wound. And once again, decreased blood flow means decreased delivery of the leukocytes and the oxygen. And this is and it's the neutrophils which mediate the inflammatory phase of the wound healing, and as the macrophages, which mediate the proliferative phase of the wound healing. And they definitely need the free oxygen radicals to combat any microbes that might possibly be there. And then the last patient factor is simply the advanced age. When the patient is is elderly, her or his immune system is naturally... Weak, especially the cellular immunity becomes very weak, and that could predispose to any type of infection, especially not especially but including surgical side infection. Okay, let's now move on to the procedural risk factors, and the first one is emergency surgery. Let's say that we have a patient who has penetrating abdominal trauma, right? Let's use the topic that we discussed today, and let's say that we see the signs of peritonitis. the patient is hemodynamically unstable, and we took this patient to the OR. And this patient was so unstable that we did not have enough time to sufficiently sterilize or sufficiently disinfect the site of incision. So we did some disinfection, but it was not ideal, and we started operation and after several days this patient developed let's say cellulitis in the surgical wound so the idea is that whenever we have to do an emergency surgery whenever the patient is in immediately life threatening condition sometimes there's insufficient time to ideally disinfect the site of incision and that could introduce some of the normal skin flora microorganisms into the wound causing infection also, if we are performing the open surgical approach, let's suppose laparotomy rather than laparoscopy, then this is a very, very big risk factor for a surgical side infection because the more, tis- the more internal tissue and organs are exposed to the external environment, the higher the risk of infection. Because the bacteria from the external environment, let's say the OR, can all colonize the exposed uh, visceral organs. However, when we perform laparoscopy where there is minimal exposure, almost no exposure of the patient's visceral organs, in that case, the risk of surgical side infections can go down. And this was the discussion about risk factors of surgical side infections. Now we will talk about the timeline of the causes of the postoperative fever. Before we talk about the specific causes of the post op fever in the different window, I mean, time frame after the surgery, we should divide the time after surgery into immediate, acute, subacute, and delayed. Immediate post op fever happens in the first six hours after the surgery, then, acute fever is from one day to one week. Subacute post op fever develops from one week to one month, and then if post op fever happens more than one month after the surgery, that's called delayed post op fever. Let's start by discussing what the cause can be for the immediate post op fever. This is usually the tissue trauma, the manipulation of our own tissue itself can actually cause the fever. So it might not be an infection. The fever might be the result of the surgical manipulations. So yeah, surgical manipulations themselves. Also, if the patient needs blood transfusion during the surgery, we know that blood transfusions can cause many, many different transfusion reactions. And one of them, which is the most common one, by the way, is febrile non-hemolytic transfusion reaction. And it's called febrile transfusion reaction because it presents with fever and it happens within the first six hours after surgery. And finally, we might also have malignant hyperthermia. And let me remind you that malignant hyperthermia is a multifactorial condition because it has genetic predisposition due to RYR, RYR1 gene mutation. But at the same time, the patient should have exposure to the specific medications like halothane and generally inhaled anesthetics, except for nitrous oxide, can all potentially cause malignant hyperthermia. And also succinylcholine, which is the depolarizing neuromuscular blocker, is known to cause malignant hyperthermia in genetically susceptible individuals. And it's hyperthermia, meaning it can cause the post-op fever. Moving on to the acute causes of the post-op fever, which is from one day to one week, this is usually nosocomial infections because after surgery, patient is held into the hospital for several days for monitoring and observation. And we know that in hospital, there is a high risk for nosocomial infections, which usually are multidrug-resistant organisms, right? At the same time, the acute post-op fever could be due to surgical side infection. And this time, surgical side infection is usually due to group A streptococcus or clostridium perfringens. And post-op fever might also be caused by catheter side infection. And finally, we might have an acute post-op fever due to non-infectious causes, like the patient might develop MI. DVT with pulmonary embolism or without pulmonary embolism. And yeah, so this is another reason for acute post-op fever. As for the subacute post-op fever, the most cause here is surgical sign infections. However, in contrast to the acute post-op fever due to surgical sign infections, which was usually caused by group A, strep, or C perfringence, the surgical sign infections with in, in the subacute postal fever category are usually caused by other organisms different from the group A strep or the C perfringens. It might still be the catheter site infections. However, in the subacute fever, which starts anywhere from one week to one month, Clostridioides difficile, which was formerly known as Clostridium difficile, is an important, very, very high-yield reason let me remind you that it causes pseudomembranous colitis. Subacute post-op fever could also be caused by the drugs and, once again, non-infectious causes, especially pulmonary embolism and DVT, can also cause subacute post-op fever. And finally, when we talk about delayed post-op fever, this is usually due to viral infections or this might be due to surgical side infections from the indolent organisms. And this is how we sum up the causes and the timeline of the post-op fever. We will now talk about the criteria for valve replacement in aortic stenosis. In other words, when do we change the valve in case of aortic stenosis? We have severe aortic stenosis criteria, and knowing all of these criteria are extremely high yield for the CK exam. So, the first one is aortic jet velocity at least four meters per second. And let's think about this. I don't want us to memorize these findings. I want us to understand why these three criteria are considered to be criteria for severe aortic stenosis. When the trans aortic, I mean transvalvular flow velocity is at least four meters per second, it means that there is. Such a, such a severe stenosis that in order to maintain the normal stroke volume, or at least approximate normal, normal stroke volume, we need to eject blood through this narrow wing with a very high velocity. And if this velocity is at least 4 meters per second, this aortic stenosis qualifies as severe aortic stenosis. Or, The second criteria is when the mean transvalvular pressure gradient is at least 40 millimeters of mercury. When we have aortic stenosis, could you tell me what happens to the left ventricular myocardium? Does it undergo concentric hypertrophy or eccentric hypertrophy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it undergoes concentric hypertrophy because this is a pressure overload. And when... Left ventricle or myocardium undergoes pressure, undergoes um, hypertrophy. Then, during the systole, it develops very, very high pressures, much higher than the aortic pressure, to force that blood out of that very, very small hole of the aortic stenosis. And therefore, if this transvalvular pressure gradient is at least 40 millimeter mercury, it means that left ventricle needs to develop a very, very high pressure to eject the blood into the aorta. And finally, if the aortic valve area measured by the ultrasound is less than one centimeter square, this is also a criterion for severe aortic stenosis. However, this last criterion is not necessary to be present in order to diagnose the patient with severe aortic stenosis. In other words, the presence of either of the first two criteria that we mentioned is enough to say that somebody has severe aortic stenosis. And then what are the indications for aortic valve replacement? The presence of severe aortic stenosis alone is not enough to say that the patient needs the aortic valve replacement. In order for the patient to be eligible for valve replacement, this patient should have severe aortic stenosis and at least one of these three symptoms. The first is onset of the aortic stenosis symptoms, which is either angina, syncope, or the heart failure symptoms, or if the patient's left ventricular ejection fraction is less than 50%, which indicates severe heart failure caused by the long-standing aortic stenosis, or if the patient is undergoing the cardiac surgery for some other Indication, let's say the patient is undergoing cabbage, then we can take this opportunity and we can also change the patient's aortic valve. So the baseline is that we should know the criteria for severe aortic stenosis, but we should also realize that the presence, the mere presence of severe aortic stenosis, is not enough to qualify the patient for valve replacement. We should have the severe aortic stenosis plus either onset of the aortic stenosis symptoms or low ejection fraction, or the patient should be undergoing some other kind of surgery, let's say the cabbage. And this was the valve replacement criteria in aortic stenosis. We will finish up our today's episode with the variceal hemorrhage bleed algorithm. Let's say that we have a patient who is known to be an alcoholic. And this patient has been hospitalized several times before due to complications of alcoholic cirrhosis. And now this patient is admitted to the emergency department because this patient is vomiting up blood. So what's the first thing that you're thinking about? Mm -hmm, I agree. This is most likely the variceal hemorrhage, which is the most common cause of death in cirrhotic patients because whenever the esophageal varices rupture, the bleeding is so profuse that the patient might die in a very, very short period of time. Therefore, the initial measures in the management of the variceal bleeding is focused solely on the patient's stabilization. We should place two large-bore IV catheters in order to transfuse the patient with as much fluid as she or he needs. And we definitely start this fulling resuscitation. At the same time, we should administer IV octreotide. Can you remind me why should we give octreotide to the patient with acute variceal bleed? I hope you're saying that octreotide, which is somatostatin receptor, Uh, agonist, can actually vasoconstrict the splanchnic vessels. It can clamp down those splanchnic or gastrointestinal vessels, and therefore it can decrease the pressure in the portal system. And we also give antibiotics to such patients because let me tell you that esophageal variceal hemorrhage is a risk factor for spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. And whenever we have a risk factor for SBP, we always want to prevent its development in a cirrhotic patient. For prevention, we mostly use the fluoroquinolones, let's say levofloxacin, ciprofloxacin. And this is what we would give this patient with variceal bleeding. But when we want to treat already existing SVP, that's when we use the third generation cephalosporins like cefotaxime or ceftriaxone, but that's a different, uh, different uh, discussion. Okay, so we said that we give volume in terms of the IV fluids, IV octetide, and antibiotics. One thing is that we never ever give propranolol in acute variceal hemorrhage. And here's the reason why. Propranolol is a non-selective beta blocker. It blocks both beta-1 and beta-2 receptors. We can use and administer propranolol to patients with cirrhosis to prevent esophageal variceal rupture because propranolol, by blocking beta-2 receptor, also vasoconstricts the splenic vasculature just like octreotide does. However, if we have a patient with acute variceal hemorrhage and we give this patient uh, the propranolol, it means that we will decrease the patient's heart rate and patient's contractility, which might exacerbate a potential hypovolemic shock that this patient is probably in during the variceal hemorrhage. So during the acute hemorrhage, we really don't want to suppress the myocardium because the myocardium that supports the body's needs and that basically maintains the life during this situation. After we give the IV fluids, IV octreotide and antibiotics, then we should do the urgent endoscopy for the esophageal varices. And there are three potential possibilities of what we can see on endoscopy. When we do endoscopy, there might be no bleeding at all. So bleeding can stop on its own. In that case, we will start secondary prophylaxis, meaning we will give beta blockers to this patient after stabilization, and specifically we need propranolol, and we will follow up this patient one to two weeks later, and we will perform endoscopic bend ligation to prevent further rupture of these esophageal varices. However, Let's say that we are doing endoscopy and we see that bleeding is continuing. So bleeding doesn't stop. What we do in this case, first of all, we need some kind of temporizing measure. We need to uh, minimize the blood loss from the ruptured esophageal varices. And for this, we use the balloon tamponade, which is the, the esophageal balloon, which inflates and which compresses the ruptured esophageal varices, against the esophageal wall so that it minimizes the blood loss. It's also called the Blackmorse tube, right? But there are different types of tubes. Main idea is that we do this balloon tamponade just as a temporary measure to minimize the blood loss. But after this temporary measure, we will probably need to uh, perform the TIPS surgery or transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt to reverse the blood flow in the portal system and to decrease the portal pressures and then the third possibility is when we have early rebleeding on the endoscopic investigation in that case we will repeat the endoscopic therapy if the patient starts rebleeding, and if there is recurrent hemorrhage like if we confirm that this is recurrent variceal bleeding then we have no other choice other than doing the TIPs surgery or the shunt surgery. Okay, we have come to an end of our today's episode and let's summarize everything, in short, that we have discussed today. In today's episode, we have discussed the penetrating abdominal trauma and its algorithm, post-amputation pain syndrome and its differential, primary survey for advanced trauma life support, rectus sheath hematoma. We also discussed the risk factors for surgical site infection and the timeline of the postoperative fever. And then we finished up our episode with the criteria for aortic stenosis valve replacement and also the algorithm of variceal hemorrhage management. For these conditions, we should definitely know, we should try to know everything that we have discussed. However, knowing the pathophysiology and the management is extremely important for the USMLE Step 2 CK exam. You can leave the voice message on this episode to let us know how we can improve our podcast for you. So thank you for your kind attention, USMLEers, and see you on the next episode.